Uh, good morning to everybody. As I, I look out, I see there are a number of us. Our group must be traveling on the road today. And we do pray that God would watch over them. And as I look out, I see one or two visitors. So again, I'd like to extend a warm, a warm welcome to you. Uh, I trust everyone enjoyed their Thanksgiving, had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, this was our first American Thanksgiving. I was relieved to see that it involved, as it does back in Canada, turkey and stuffing. That's all I really cared about. So we had a, a wonderful American Thanksgiving and a wonderful time of celebration. We were actually over at the Angstrom's home and had a delightful time uh, with them. You know it as well as I do. Uh, as Christians, our Thanksgiving isn't restricted to one particular day in the year nor is it restricted to Sunday, the Lord's Day, but we live our lives as believers as an expression of thanksgiving. Paul, the Apostle Paul, goes so far to exhort us as Christians to give thanks. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. To give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, I, you, we are to give thanks in each and every circumstance, all circumstances. For this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Now, that is a remarkable word of exhortation. Imagine I wake up tomorrow and I turn on the radio and I listen to the news to hear that every ale house, drug house, pimp house in North Texas has burned to the ground. What would my response be? I praise the Lord. Thanksgiving. Let's imagine the next day I awake. We're imagining here, right? And I turn on the radio and I listen to the news only to discover that every Christian church, every Christian publishing house, and every Christian school has burned to the ground. How would I respond? I would praise God and thank him in each and every circumstance. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God or do we not believe in the sovereignty of God? Paul exhorts us, give thanks in all circumstances, which is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The key is that little phrase, in Christ Jesus. Because you see, as Christians, the cause of our thanksgiving is rooted in eternal verities and realities which the circumstances of this life cannot touch. My joy, my peace, my thanksgiving is rooted in an anchor, in a rock, in a firm foundation. And the Lord Jesus Christ. At the outset this morning, let me give you four truths concerning thanksgiving to make sure we're all on the same page when we use this well-worn word, thanksgiving. The first truth is this. Christian thanksgiving is focused on God. James reminds us of that very fact in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift And every perfect gift is from above. God is the source of all blessing. 
Therefore, he alone is the object of all thanksgiving. So a very simple, straightforward truth. Thanksgiving is focused on God. The second truth is this. Christian thanksgiving is expressed through Christ. And Paul makes that clear in his epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so Christ is the avenue, the means, the vehicle by which God bestows every good and perfect gift upon us. All blessing descends through Christ. Therefore, all thanksgiving ascends through Christ. The third truth is this. Christian thanksgiving is the evidence of grace. Having experienced the grace of God in my life, having tasted of the glory of God in Christ, having tasted of what it means to have my sins forgiven, having tasted of what it means to have God's wrath turned away, to have this hope of eternal life, I cannot contain myself. Thanksgiving just flows from grace. And the fourth truth is this. Christian thanksgiving is an expression of worship. We acknowledge God's Goodness, his goodness to us in bestowing every good gift and every perfect gift in bestowing every spiritual blessing upon us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Circumstances, whatever you're going through this morning, whatever I'm going through, whatever you experienced yesterday, whatever will come down the highway tomorrow, cannot touch those realities, cannot touch those truths, nothing under heaven can rob us or diminish what God has granted us in the Lord Jesus. Again, the words of Paul, his exhortation to us this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances. What's God's will for my life? There's his will for your life. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Turning to John 17, which we have been considering the past couple of Sundays, we discover four reasons for giving thanks. In John 17, you will remember the Lord Jesus offers his high priestly prayer to his father. In the first five verses, the focus of his prayer is himself. He makes a couple of requests on his own behalf. Beginning in verse 6, right through to verse 10, he begins to describe his followers, his disciples, those whom the Father has given him. And then beginning in verse 11, right through to the end of the chapter, verse 26, he makes four requests, petitions, on behalf of his people. Very simple, straightforward. Father, keep them. In other words, protect them. Father, sanctify them. In other words, Make them holy. Father, unite them. In other words, make them one as you and I are one. And Father, finally glorify them that they may be where I am and that they may behold my glory. There are four requests. There are four petitions that the Father has answered. Very simply, safety and sanctity, unity and glory. And there are four reasons for which we can give thanks to God this morning, this day. 
And what we're going to do this morning as we've turned to John chapter 17 is consider those first two, those first two causes of thanksgiving, safety and sanctity. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll turn yet again to John 17 and look at the last two causes of thanksgiving, uh, unity and glory. But for this morning, safety and sanctity. Follow along in your Bibles as I begin reading again in John 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, says the Lord Jesus, but they, his people, are in the world. And I am coming to you, an explicit reference to his ascension. Holy Father, keep them in your name. We focused a great deal upon God's name. And how God's power is implicit to his name. We focused on that in our singing and our worship this morning. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction That the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? Back in Psalm 41 verse 9. That statement there in verse 12 is actually somewhat confusing. It, it, It seems to suggest at first glance that the Lord Jesus is implying that Judas was one of those whom the Father had given to him. He had, be, he had been able to preserve, to protect, to guard the rest. But unfortunately, regrettably, sadly, Judas had been lost. Well, that would be a gross misinterpretation of this verse. What we have in this verse, in the words of the Lord Jesus, is a case of what's known as abbreviated expression. Christ is actually saying, I guarded them. Those whom you gave me before the foundation of the world, none of them perished. The son of perdition. Yes, he did perish. But this actually happened to fulfill prophecy. What is spoken of back in Psalm 41. Continuing to read in verse 13, but now I am coming to you again is ascension and these things I speak in the world, this prayer specifically, I make it audibly in their hearing his disciples that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. We've already discussed that in great detail back in chapters 15 and 16. Why have they hated them? Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, sanctify myself, set myself apart, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Safety and sanctity. We read about safety. Christ's petition, keep them. Beginning in verse 11, all the way through to verse 15. And then we read about sanctity. Christ's second petition. Beginning in verse 16, right through to where we ended the reading this morning in verse 19. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. 
And my prayer is that the Spirit of God would impress these precious truths upon us. That, it did, what, that what Christ says there at the end of verse 13 might be a reality in us this morning. That His joy may be fulfilled in us. As we consider these great gifts, these great blessings which the Father has bestowed upon us in the Son. Now before we consider safety, what Christ says there in verses 11 through, through 15... We need to come to grips with with Christ's relationship and and the devil. Uh, The relationship between between the Lord Jesus and and Satan. Uh, Christ makes it clear in this passage that I have guarded them. I have kept them in your name. He makes it very clear that his concern is that he is leaving them in the world. This world has a prince. This world has a ruler, the evil one. And his concern is that as he departs, the father now guards them and keeps them in his name. Well, Christ has done that. Well, well, what is this relationship between Christ and the evil one? Uh, What precisely is the relationship between Christ and the devil? I'm taking the time to go down this road because there is so much confusion concerning this subject in our day. Uh, We we live, by and large, in a day and age within the church in which people seem to have, to a great extent, seem to have this dualistic understanding of the relationship between God, uh, the, uh, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit on the one hand, and the devil. And by dualistic understanding, I mean they they tend to view them as two equal forces, uh, two equal powers that are engaged in this this combat in the heavenlies. And at times, God, praise God, gets the the upper hand and gets the better of the devil. But sadly, uh, regrettably, at times, the devil seems to get the upper hand and, I don't know, catches God off guard or something. And and so you have these two competing forces. And and, and who, what's going to happen in the end? Who who knows? And and at times, you know, the devil's having his day. And at times, oh, praise God, God's having his day. And at times, bad things happen in life. Bad things happen in the church. Bad things happen in our country. Well, I guess that's the devil having his way. And who knows where God is? But then when there's clear sailing and things seem to be all smooth and honky-dory and life is a bed of roses, well, God must be in the ascendancy. And there is this confusion It's a false paradigm. Uh, The universe is not a dualistic universe. The devil and God. A better paradigm is like this. You have God, the Almighty, and you have the devil who is but a pawn in the hand of the Almighty. You have God who, according to his own sovereign plans and purposes, willingly permits the devil to do what is in his heart to do Because it serves God's sovereign will. And that is the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the devil. Let me break it down a little more for you in five truths. The first is this. Make no mistake about it. Christ rules over the devil's kingdom. In Matthew 4.9, the devil tempts the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. He says to him, as he shows him the kingdoms of the earth, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Yes, it's true. John makes it clear in John 12, 31, the devil is the ruler of this world. But please understand, friend, it is a delegated rule. It is a delegated authority. What do I mean by that? It is an authority that he did not take by right. It is an authority that has been bestowed upon him. 
That is made abundantly clear as the Lord Jesus goes on throughout his public ministry and he casts out demons whenever, wherever he wishes. And Matthew makes it clear as he records the words of the Lord Jesus that Christ himself has bound the strong man that he might pillage his house. You see, the very kingdom of Satan is subservient to the rule of the Lord Jesus. Second truth is this. Christ rules over the devil's minions. Matthew 8, a wonderful story. As the Lord Jesus disembarks from the boat in the land of the Gadarenes, he's with his disciples, and there's a half-crazed man, demon-possessed, who lives among the tombs and and inflicts himself and, and cuts himself with rocks involved in self-mutilation. And his family members and friends and fellow citizens have tried to bind him with ropes and cords. But when the demon comes upon him, he breaks these. And the Lord Jesus disembarks from this boat. And no sooner has the Lord Jesus set foot on the shore than this demon-possessed man comes running over the hills, prostrates himself before the Lord Jesus and cries, Have you come here to torment us? Before the time. You see, the demon's name is Legion. He knows in whose presence he now grovels the Lord God Almighty. And he associates the Lord Jesus with his own final doom. Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? And the Lord Jesus with a word expels legion from that man. And there we see the authority of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and Christ exercising His rule over the devil's minions. The third truth is this. Christ rules over the devil's temptations. And so returning to Matthew 4, where the devil himself tempts the Lord Jesus, Christ has spent those 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He has fasted. Humanly speaking, he is in a weakened condition. And so Satan comes to him with that threefold temptation. But what is extremely significant is the very first verse of Matthew 4, where Matthew records the following. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word in the English, led up, it's ekabalo in the Greek. It literally means compelled. It's actually the same word that is used when Jesus expels demons from the lives of men and women. It it, it speaks of force. The Holy Spirit compelled, drove Christ into the wilderness. Why? Because he had an appointment with the devil to be tempted. Again, we see that temptation subservient to God's own plans and purposes. The devil is not free to tempt whomever, whenever he pleases. He is free to do so insofar as it accomplishes God's own plans and purposes. You know it as well as I do. Job so wonderfully illustrates that, doesn't he? So Lucifer appeals, appears before God. And God tells him, encourages him to consider the men of the earth. And in particular, his servant Job. No one like him. And well, the devil wants at him. First, he must ask permission. And God willingly permits the devil to take away Job's possessions and his family. 
But it's not enough. Job won't curse God. The devil goes again before God. And he must ask permission. And upon receiving permission, he then attacks Job's physical person. Again, I've said it two or three times. I'll say it again. The devil is not free to do as he pleases. He works within very definite parameters set and defined and established by the Lord God Almighty Himself. That's true of His temptation and His attacks upon men and women. The fourth truth is this. Christ rules over the devil's use of disease. Matthew 12:22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And so in this instance, not in every instance, certainly not, but in this instance, that man's physical ailments, his inability to speak, his inability to see was directly rooted to that demon possession. But we see the Lord Jesus casts out that demon. The Lord Jesus heals that man. Again, demonstrating his authority over the devil and the devil's demons. Fifth truth is this. Christ rules over the devil's use of animals. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 8. The Lord Jesus expels legion. What is Legion's request as he spies that herd of swine, pigs? Let me go over and possess them. Uh, Why? Was his purpose simply to destroy a herd of pigs? Or or was the demon's intent to use those pigs to destroy others? But but when, when when he went into the pigs, he worked them into such a frenzy that they plummeted themselves down that slope into the water where they, were, where they were drowned. But the point is this, whether it be possessing the climax, the epitome, the high point of God's creation, man himself, or something so despicable in the Jewish eye as a pig, that demon needed the permission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we understand that this morning? Do we appreciate that? We are not involved in some sort of dualistic, cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil and, ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. The end has already been written. And let me repeat it. The devil and his servants are merely pawns in the hands of the Lord Jesus. That gives me great assurance as the Lord Jesus here in John 17 prays to his Father. Ooh, gee, I wonder if the Father's going to answer his prayer. I wonder, if, I wonder if he has the power to answer his prayer. I wonder if he's really going to be able to do this. Of course he's able to do this. It's a given. It's God the Son praying to God the Father on behalf of all those whom the Father has given to the Son. Father, I have guarded them in your name. I am now coming to you. Here's what I pray. Here is my will. I will as you will. That you continue to preserve them. You continue to keep them. You continue to protect them. Very important that we understand that the basis, the basis of this protection is the intercession of the Lord Jesus. The basis of this protection, safety, security, is the intercession of Christ. You sit there this morning, a Christian. I stand here behind the pulpit, a Christian. Do we fully grasp that the only thing that stands between us and the devil having his way with us is the intercessory prayers 
of the Lord Jesus Christ in our behalf. The only thing, the only thing that stops the devil from ravaging you this morning is the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say the only thing, but it is more than sufficient. As the Son intercedes on behalf of his people, assuring, guaranteeing their security. In Luke 22, the most interesting event is recorded where the Lord Jesus fixes his gaze on Peter, addresses him, Simon, Simon, and says to him, listen to these words, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. Believer, the Lord Jesus has prayed for you. This is troubling. And it opens, it opens Pandora's box, which I'm not even going to try to close again when it's open, but it's truth. I'm going to put it out there. The Lord Jesus did not pray for Judas. And the devil had his way with Judas. But he interceded on behalf of Peter. The devil has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Peter, set your mind at ease. I have prayed for you. Believer, set your mind at ease. Absolute safety. Absolute security. What's the basis? The simple fact that the Son of God has prayed for me. That's the basis of this protection. Consider the means of this protection. The name of the Lord. A strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. There's a great story tucked away in 1 Samuel 14. I don't know for what reason, but as a child, it was one of my favorite stories. But the real significance of it only came home a couple of years ago. It involves Jonathan and his armor bearer. There in 1 Samuel 14, they go out. And uh, the Philistines are encamped in one side of the valley, the, the Israelites in another side. And, and, and Jonathan goes out with his armor bearer to see what's going on, survey the enemy's lines, and they come upon this Philistine garrison. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, let's, let's, let's attack them and see what happens. He says these words to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. By many or by few. There are only two of us. There could be 200 of us. There could be 2,000 of us. There could be 2 million of us. It makes no difference. The Lord is not hindered from saving by many or by few. What was going through Jonathan's mind as he uttered those words? Well-schooled, undoubtedly, in his nation's history. Perhaps he was thinking of the Exodus. The, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, had enslaved the Israelites. And there were those Israelites, hopeless and, and helpless under the boot of Pharaoh. Uh, nothing they could do to, to better their situation. But God intervened. And God was not hindered to save by many or by few. And God was well pleased to go forth in power and save the Israelites from the Egyptians. Or perhaps Jonathan was thinking about the history of the judges. Once Israel was in the land, 
And, and the Israelites would, would rebel and the Israelites would sin against God. And so God would send the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Moabites and other foreign nations to oppress Israel. And then Israel would cry out to the Lord in repentance. And then God would raise up Deborah or Samson or Gideon or some other judge to rescue the, 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 the Israelites from their oppressors. In and of themselves, they were no match for those who oppressed them. But you see, the Lord is not hindered to save by many or by few. Or perhaps Jonathan was thinking of recent history. Jabesh Gilead, was that the name of the city when the Ammonites invaded and surrounded the city. And that city was no match for these invaders. And so the invaders offered terms of peace and said, you can surrender, but here's what's going to happen. Uh, The men of the city were going to gouge out your right eyes. Uh, The eyes that the the men would use to, to peer beyond their shields in battle. So in other words, they would render them useless for conflict. And you will become our slaves. And the, the, the citizens of Gilead, they were, they were helpless to do anything about it. They said, give us seven days to see if anyone will come to our rescue. And God himself comes and rescues and saves the citizens of that city. Why? Because you see, the Lord is not hindered to save by many or by few. And Jonathan undoubtedly had these, these great truths concerning his God streaming through his mind. Come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. There is no opposition to God's power when it comes to our salvation. Now that leads Paul to declare in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, Somebody, I'm inserting ad living here, somebody please tell me, who can be against us? The reformers, based on the Latin translation of that verse, if God is for us, coined a phrase, Deus pro nobos, God for us. And if God is on our side, and if we are in God's name, then who can stand against us? And there we have the means by which we are secure. The means by which God preserves us, it is his own name, his own power. Consider thirdly with me the purpose, the purpose of this protection. We read of this in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. One author has written, the world is Satan's chessboard. We can hardly move, but the devil sets out one creature or another to attack us or allure us out of the way wherein we should walk. That is the danger that faces us as we sojourn in this world. The ruler of this world, the devil himself, sets the creature before us. And he has two purposes in doing so. One, he wants to attack us, causing us to... Draw back. Or he wants to allure us, causing us to simply drift away. He preys on our fear. He preys on our misplaced love. He preys on our ill-directed affections, seeking to deter us from the way. The Lord Jesus knows this. 
The Lord Jesus knows the devil's schemes. The Lord Jesus knows that the devil is a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. And so the purpose of his prayer, this purpose of this protection is to keep us from the evil one. Now, as we meditate upon, as we reflect on the basis of this protection, uh, Christ's own prayer, the means of this protection, God's almighty name, and the purpose of this protection to keep us from the evil one, let me submit two lessons to you this morning. The first is this. This should be a challenge to each and every one of us here. Now, you think of Peter. When Peter made that, made that bold claim that when Christ's trial came, that although all of the other disciples would forsake him, although all of the other disciples would run away, that Peter alone would stand firm, that Peter alone would be willing to lay down his life for Christ. What was Peter's problem? What was Peter suffering from? An overinflated opinion of self. His trust was in himself rather than in the Lord. Christian, as we sojourn in this life and as we face the hostility of this world, as we face all that the devil has arrayed against us, woe to us if we trust in self. We need to heed the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed, lest he fall. So there's a challenge there. These words are also a cause for comfort this morning. Comfort as we consider the fact that the Lord Jesus has prayed for our security and that the Father does indeed hear, not only hear, but answer the Son's prayers. On the Father's part, there is sovereign grace and infinite power guaranteeing our security. On the Son's part, there is sufficient merit and eternal intercession guaranteeing our security. So Thomas Manton writes, this prayer, this prayer of Christ's is a fountain of all consolation, a fountain of all comfort. So much for safety. Look with me now at sanctity. Beginning in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So they are in the world, but they are not of it. Here's my next prayer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Again, think in terms of the basis, the means and the purpose. What is the basis of our sanctification, this request? Christ points us in that direction in verse 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself. When did the Lord Jesus consecrate himself? Well, he did in a sense before the foundation of the world. When the Father and Son entered into this covenant of redemption to redeem his people, the Son set himself apart. He consecrated himself to redeem God's people. He did also in a sense at the time of his baptism. And there publicly when he entered the waters of baptism in the Jordan River and he declared, I do this that all righteousness might be fulfilled, he is in effect setting himself apart, consecrating himself again to fulfill the Father's will. But far eclipsing these, undoubtedly the Lord Jesus has in view primarily the cross. 
where he consecrated himself fully, sanctified himself fully, set himself apart fully to do the Father's will. And there is the basis of our sanctification. That when the Lord Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and, and, and takes hold of us by that Spirit, and when we believe in the Lord Jesus and place our faith and trust in Him and repent of our sin, we are made one with Him. One with Him in His death. One with Him in His burial. One with Him in His resurrection. Whereby we are now crucified to the world. And you'll see the basis of our sanctification, the basis of this work that God performs in us, the basis for which God makes us holy, increasingly holy in His sight, is the finished work of the Lord Jesus and our union with Christ in that work by virtue of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And what is the means of our sanctification? It tells us in verse 17. Sanctify them. How? In the truth. Your word is truth. Paul says something very similar in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So Christ performs this wonderful work in us, setting us apart, producing holiness in us. How does he do that? He does it through the Holy Spirit who works through the Word. How do I grow in godliness? How do I become more holy? How do I increase in sanctification? There is only one answer to that question. It is the Word of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word's commandments. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God. Your sanctification. The Holy Spirit uses the word's examples, Hebrews 6.12, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It leads to a third means. The Holy Spirit uses the word's promises. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The Holy Spirit uses the words blessings. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Tremendous blessing, but why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And the Holy Spirit uses, fifthly, the words warnings. Hebrews 12.14 Strive for holiness, without which no one will see. The Lord. That is the means by which God sanctifies us. And the purpose of our sanctification, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. They are not of the world, but they are in the world. I have sent them into the world that they might reflect my light in the darkness. There's the purpose of this setting apart. There's the purpose of sanctification. That yes, rooted in the cross of Christ. Yes, accomplished the means of the Spirit of God applying the Word of God to us that we might be in the world. 
Not that the world would have a corrupting influence on us, but that we would have a preserving and sanctifying influence on the world. That is the purpose. We aren't of the world. Yet we are called to live in the world. What a struggle this has presented to the church throughout its history. The church has vacillated time and again between two extremes. On the one hand, we've fallen into isolationism where we've understood that statement, we are not of the world, but that's all we've heard. And completely cut ourselves off from the world. And you think of the monastic movement and those monks and, and others who lived in, in, uh, in isolation and in caves and then followed by monasteries. This, this, this focus on this statement, not of the world, therefore complete isolation. It's an extreme. And yet at other times in its history, the church has vacillated to the other extreme. Assimilation whereby the barrier between the world and the church has been completely broken down and the two have become indistinguishable and the world has taken on, the church has taken on all that represents the world and has succumbed ultimately to worldliness. And yet we see, do we not, the prayer of the Son answered by the Father that despite human frailty and weakness and this vacillation between these two extremes, The Father has time and time again brought His people back to the truth. We are in this world, yes, but we are not of this world. Why is that challenging? Why is that a challenge to us this morning? It is a challenge because of that very struggle of how it it is to live in this world without the mire sticking to us. As Horatius Bonar writes, Associating too much and too intimately with the world, we have in a great measure become accustomed to its way. We have in a great measure lost all sensitivity to sin. What would scandalize my grandmother no longer scandalizes me. Why? Because I've become callous to it all. And the world has a far greater influence and impact on me than I do on it. You can't, get, you can't get away from all the talk, and I'm, I'm sorry to bring it up publicly. We can't get away from all the talk these days about the swine flu, can't we? And, and just how this has been blown all out of proportion and the fear-mongering that's going on. But, but it is true, is it not, that these kind of ailments and illnesses that are airborne, we contract them one from another. And we can catch the flu and catch colds from one another. Interesting, we never catch health from one another. Get in a room with a bunch of healthy people and I'm going to catch health. No, I can catch sickness, but I never catch health. So it is with the world. You can go for a walk through the field. And as many of you warned us when we first moved down here, you need to be careful out walking around because of those stickers. It's interesting, an ear of corn never latches on to me when I'm out walking around. Apple from a tree never fixes itself to me. But those stickers, you can't get away from them. And so too it is in the world. We never, ever catch anything good or helpful or God-glorifying from the world. But the world sure does wreak havoc on us. We, 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 We suck in its sensuality. We suck in its gluttony and its immorality. And it leads to that terrible state of worldliness described by Edward so succinctly. He who is in a worldly condition is unable to judge spiritual realities properly. 
Let me ask you, friend, are you able to judge spiritual realities properly? Are you at all sensible when it comes to eternal realities? Do you have a clear vision of heaven and hell? Do you have a clear vision of the temporal versus the eternal? Do you have a clear sense of God's will for you, your sanctification? Do you take it seriously? Or do you find yourself constantly panting after the world? That is a challenge to us, is it not? Because Paul makes it so clear in Romans chapter 8 that Christians do what? They walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And to be born again, to be regenerate, is to have a new principle whereby the Spirit of God dwells within And he cultivates in us that sensitivity, that repulsion towards sin and all that this world throws our way. It's a challenge to us this morning. But secondly, Christ's prayer for our sanctity is also a great comfort. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5, Christ will, Christ will present his bride to himself in splendor, without spot without wrinkle, without any such thing. I take great comfort from that. Knowing that it doesn't depend on me. Knowing that my sanctification is rooted in the cross of Christ. Knowing that my sanctification is brought about by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. Knowing that the Son of God has prayed that I might be sanctified in truth. And I have this absolute certainty, no doubt whatsoever, that the Father, by His almighty power, will see to it. Sanctity and safety. The first two petitions offered up by the Lord Jesus to His Father while here on earth, and the first two petitions which echo through the corridors of time, That the Son continues to present before His Father. And what an assurance is ours. What a comfort we have knowing that the Father not only hears His Son's prayers, but answers His Son's prayers. For the will of the Son is to do the will of the Father. Our Heavenly Father, As we take time at the conclusion of our service to come before you in prayer. We confess again our utmost dependence upon your spirit to work through what has been said. To take your word and to drive it home. We do pray that you would enlarge our minds, granting us a measure of understanding. We pray as well that you would enlarge our hearts granting us a a love for these truths. We pray, our Father, as our Lord Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed, that you would keep us. We echo that prayer and are so thankful that you do. We pray that you would sanctify us. And again, are so thankful that you do by your Spirit who dwells in us. What great comfort this brings. What great assurance this affords. And our Father, for our part, we pray that you would stir in us a greater appreciation of what it means to be in the Lord Jesus. And may this 
stir us on. May it provide an anchor in the storms of life. May it provide a sure compass as we walk in this perilous world. May it provide a a sure and weighty anchor as we experience many different storms and different things that assail us during the course of our sojourn here. We do pray, our Father, that these truths may not merely remain stuck in our minds, but may take residence in our hearts, shaping our lives to such an extent that the result is for the glory of your name. We pray, our Father, these things. We pray that you would come now and impress your word afresh upon us. And we ask it in the precious name of Christ. Amen.